Welcome to Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL, a new series from the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation. In conversation with thought leaders and change makers in higher education, nonprofits, and industry, we'll explore why Atlanta is the innovation capital of the Southeast. Thank you for joining the Hatchery Emory Center for Innovation from Might Could, Tales of Innovation in the ATL, where we explore why Atlanta is the innovation capital of the Southeast in conversation with thought leaders and disruptors in nonprofits, higher education and industry who are making Atlanta a city of the future. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming two guests to the show who are leveraging their diverse backgrounds in law, development, and tech to deliver innovative solutions to food and security in Atlanta. Andrea Jaron is executive director at Second Helpings Atlanta, a nonprofit food rescue organization whose mis mission is to reduce hunger and food waste in Metro Atlanta by rescuing surplus food and distributing it to those in need. Prior to taking the reins at SAJ, she was Chief Development Officer of Meals on Wheels Atlanta and previously held development positions with the Weber School and the Anti-Defamation League, Hands on Atlanta, and more. She was drawn to the nonprofit world as a law student at Wayne State University. While volunteering for a free legal aid clinic, she realized she could apply her legal acumen to promote the welfare of others. She remains inspired by giving back and is driven to make change. Deep Kalina is the founder and CEO of Intuitio Labs, an Atlanta-based full-service agency specializing in product design, development, and performance marketing. With a global team of more than 80 experienced strategists, designers, developers, and marketers, they help businesses create and scale award-winning digital products and applications. Prior to founding his firm, he had the idea of starting a company that would rescue fresh surplus food and donate it to charities. Instead of building a new nonprofit, he joined forces with Second Helpings Atlanta and is thrilled to be able to support SHA as a member of its board. So Andrea and Deep, thank you both so much for joining us on Night Could. Thanks, Shannon. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks. Happy to be here. So I'm wondering if we could start today's conversation by providing our listeners with more information about Second Helpings Atlanta, sort of what it's all about and what makes it different from other organizations that address similar needs. So Andrea, maybe you could kick us off and then Deep could join in to uh, help fill out the picture from his perspective. Sure, my pleasure. Second Helpings Atlanta was founded in 2004 as a community service project. Um, and I think that um, the innovation back then was the idea that there were three people who had this concept in mind of um, noticing that there was so much food waste at their synagogue um, after events that the synagogue was holding. And they knew that there were um, people in the community who could really use the food. And so they made connections with people really early on to take the food that was surplus in the synagogue and, and get it over to um, some local other nonprofits. Um, and over the years, the organization grew, grew a volunteer network to 
um, pick up more food from more donors, not just from the synagogue, but started expanding and looking at grocery stores and restaurants in the community, but all done through volunteers, no professional staff at all. Um, and in 2012, they had grown large enough that the synagogue said, you know, maybe you should think about becoming an independent 501c3. Um, so they went ahead and did that, but still didn't hire any professional staff, relied on volunteers to keep things going. And then a few years later in 2015, they started doing some hiring and it's just continued to grow and grow and grow um, and really focused on this idea that um, there's a hunger, uh, food insecurity issue in our community, and there's also um, a food waste problem in our community that 40 anywhere from 30 to 40% of food in this country is wasted every single year. And um, this group of people said, we can solve two, or at least tackle two problems at the same time. Let's get together and do that. Amazing that those were the origins. I mean, it, it really grew with such a small staff to that scale. Um, mm -hmm. Deep, from your perspective, what would you add is so unique about uh, Second Helpings Atlanta? Yeah, I think uh, I, I look at, you know, I can't help myself from a product and technology perspective. But I, you know, I think it's like it's a three-sided marketplace. So you've got donors where, you know, um, and you've got, uh, you've got volunteers and you have, you have places that need the food. So it's a, it's connecting uh, supply and demand, so to speak. You know, we've got two problems that exist in the U.S., what Andrea alluded to is there's about 80 million pounds, 80 billion pounds, sorry, with a B, um, wasted in the U.S. You know, that's, that's on one side, one side of the problem. And the other side of the equation is we've got what, one in 10 people, according to the USDA, that have experienced some level of food insecurity in 2020. I, and so SHA is, is right in the middle of trying to connect, um, connect supply and demand and trying to rescue the food and get it to the people in, who need them. And we focus, uh, we tend to focus not on the last mile, it's more trying to maximize uh, what we can save and trying to get it to places that already have infrastructure uh, to get it to the families and households and individuals that need them. So, uh, so we're we are, uh, focused in kind of connecting the right amount of supply and demand. So those statistics are kind of staggering. And I think, you know, in, in some ways I feel like post pandemic, there are few statistics that can still shock us. Uh, but that one is amazing to me. And I was amazed too by a statistic on Second Helping's website that an estimated 45 million Americans, that's nearly 15% of the population, may have experienced food insecurity in 2020. And the majority of these were children. And unfortunately, the projected numbers for this year don't look much better. So in many countries facing such significant food shortfalls, the problem is insufficient production. But as you've both pointed out, that is not the problem in the United States. So I wonder if you could both weigh in a bit more on some of the main factors that have led to such widespread food insecurity in this country. Yeah, I mean, I can start with that. I think that, um, you know, when you Food security is real. Food insecurity is really about not having reliable access to affordable, nutritious food. Um, and so, when you think about the access question, and you look at um, where people live, 
how far they live from fresh food. Can they afford to purchase fresh food? Um, did they have transportation to get to fresh food? I think those are, are the, the challenges and a lot of the reason why food insecurity in this country is so significant. Um, certainly during the pandemic, there was an increase, you know, um, so many people lost their jobs. Um, I think people who were in a situation where they were already um, unstable um, in a work environment were rattled even more by what was happening during the pandemic. Um, there's plenty of people in this country who are part of the working poor. Um, so they do have jobs, but they still don't have, have the ability to afford fresh food. And, um, and so I think that those are um, a lot of the contributing factors to why food insecurity in this country is at such a high rate. Um, there have been some studies that have come out post pandemic looking at um, how the services that were provided, the financial support that was provided by the government actually positively impacted a lot of households. And I think that that's great news. Um, but I think statistically still, when you look at um, minority populations and you look at particular regions of um, localities, um, you know, certain states, certain um, more rural areas, even outside of the city or in the city, when you look at the, the, the number of people in those particular areas who are, just don't have access, the number is still really, really high. When you drive around the city of Atlanta, we, are, we just um, acquired office space um, and we're on the historic west side. And, um, and I've been driving around the area a lot to really understand um, the community and who's living there. And um, since we're in the neighborhood now, we definitely need to know our neighbors. And um, there's no grocery store. <laughs> there's just no grocery store there. So there's corner stores and the corner stores sometimes have a little bit of produce, but they don't have much. And um, when there's large populations of people that are living in those areas and there's nothing being provided to them to you know, be able to purchase if they can afford it or be able to access if they've got SNAP benefits, um, you know, it just exacerbates the problem. So that's really very much what, what I see um, on a day-to-day -day basis in our work. Um, Deep, is there anything that you'd like to add to, to that question too? Yeah, a um, couple of thoughts on top of that. I, you know, uh, I think just global context would probably be helpful. Like, if you look at, uh, to your point earlier uh, in the question, like food, food insecurity is defined not just, at least in the U.S., it's not just access to food, it's access to healthy food and varied food, right, fresh produce and the quality of food, right? At least fortunately in the global context, U.S. is, is able to measure itself uh, not just with respect to can people eat versus, you know, what is the kind of food they're eating? So that, mm -hmm. globally speaking, that's good. Um, but um, the other kind of positive is, according to USDA, at least pre-COVID numbers, uh, almost all the states in the US are trending down. The average is for uh, the number of households that fall in the food insecurity. There are two levels. 
has been trending down. That's a good thing. There's few states that are an exception, like New Mexico, where it's been growing up. But of course, COVID cha changes that equation quite a bit. So those are, you know, uh, just in, in a global context, it's a perspective for us to have. And, and Andrea is absolutely right. It's, you know, low income, access to groceries, you know, food deserts. We've talked about those, uh, you know, disability and homelessness, high correlation for uh, food insecurity with 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 those conditions. So uh, yeah, it's a you know it's a multi-dimensional problem, um, and I think we uh, it, there there has to be nonprofits like us trying to solve it at a local level, and and governments have to come at it from a from a more macro level, be it state or federal. I think I think hopefully um, that helps solve this problem. You, you know, uh, the, the interesting thing I learned uh, I, just yesterday when I was looking at the data for this call is. 50% uh, of the households that um, in the survey for USDA that say that they are food insecure in some level actually are employed. So, you know, I've, there's always this notion that it's unemployment driving food insecurity, like 50% of it is, is not unemployment, it's low income as opposed to unemployment. So just an interesting fact. So there's quite a bit to unpack, honestly, in that answer. Uh, I think, Andrea, the, right up front, the fact that you called out the economic and social factors um, behind this, and I think that in some ways is immediately intuitive, but the questions around this kind of cluster of access and geography are much more complicated, right? Because uh, as you point out, it's, it's access, it's where people live, how far they live from fresh food, whether they can afford it, whether they can get to it. And so there's, there's a literal geographic, physical intersection of uh, economic factors with these other factors. And um, Deep did a great job, I think, of diving into some of those too in relation to underemployment and, uh, and the ways that certain neighborhoods map to underemployment. As Deep said, it's a really multi-dimensional problem. And I'm wondering if you know, you've, you've addressed this logistically and you've found one potential solution to solving for it. But if you were to address the underlying issues, this dense cluster of underlying issues, is there one particular thread that you would pull at or one particular solution you would go after to start to untangle some of the others? Is it an Credibly increased minimum wage? Is it certain types of uh, neighborhood investment? Uh, you know, what, what do you think? Is there one other thread you would pull on? <laughs> well, this is just my personal opinion. Um, but I think that both of those, actually, both of those things are really relevant. I mean, it's, you're, you're, we're talking about affordability and we're talking about access. Well, how do we make things more affordable for people if a minimum wage is raised and we provide you know, a living wage to all people who are working, then things become more affordable. Um, so I think that that is a piece of it. Um, but at the same time, there still needs to be access. And I think that these communities there's some communities in the city that are just doing such a nice job of, um, of really thinking about the overall experience of living in a particular place 
and have in mind that, you know, if in our neighborhood there aren't all kinds of services, including access to fruit, fresh food, well, we're going to figure out how to make that happen. Um, so, you know, you look at the history of East Lake Atlanta and what was done there to really create and lift up that community. That's starting to happen in Grove Park now. There's some amazing nonprofits that are really thinking about the entire community and what everybody needs to have from birth to death. Um, and I think a lot of what's happening on the West side is also um, really, really important in terms of having this perspective of how do we support the community, allow people who want to live here, um, who are, you know, legacy neighbors um, be able to stay here? What kinds of things can we provide to them to create a quality of life um, so that they can stay? And also what can we do to bring in, um, what can we bring in so that we you know, expand the community as well? Um, but I do, you know, from, from our perspective, from Second Helpings Atlanta's perspective, it, it really, really is all about creating these connections to provide the access to the food. And, um, and there are lots of different resources to make that happen. Our model is really built on starting with this fresh prepared food idea or, and also rescuing surplus food from grocery stores. So a lot of fresh produce. But now we're also thinking about going to the sources before the grocery stores. Um, establishing relationships with farmers, um, not necessarily second helping to establishing those relationships, but are establishing relationships with nonprofits who have those relationships and serving as a link in the supply chain to be able to get that surplus food from the farmers into communities. And, um, and I think that, you know, when you, when you talk about pulling on just one thread, well, I think you have to sort of examine all of the connections in that thread and utilize those resources and figure out how to work together so that you can get food from one place to another and ultimately in the hands of the people who really need it. And Deep, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I, you know, I think the, um, there's... Um, I think there's two approaches to solving the problem, right? One is take take the food to the people who need it, or or bring where the food is, uh, or bring the you know uh, bring bring the people to the food, right? So I think you know the the former, which is what we are engaged in as, at SHA, is, is taking uh, produce and trying to take it to the people who need it, is one way to solve it. I think that. Um, I think a more sustained solution would be a combination of both of them. So what I mean by that is we need we need local activism, if, if you know, that word means lots of things to lots of people, but we need local uh, communities to get involved in cities to help solve the problem on a on a smaller scale. And then I think we need um, some kind of uh, we need larger programs to to do to do this consistently over decades, which is you know. There's a significantly higher gross number of groceries per capita in in uh, which follows co uh, you know income. So uh, maybe subsidize um, or give give benefits to um, grocery stores to open up in low in low income neighborhoods. 
um, things like that. You know, there's 30% increase in produce consumption if you are within three miles of a, of a grocery store. We know these facts, but so some combination of, of, a, of a macro level solution that, that incentivizes good, good food going to the people who need it. And in combination with kind of grassroots efforts where we, we try to fill the gap in the interim, I think there's, there has to be a combination of the two uh, for this to be behind us as a country, so. So, so far, a lot of these questions and answers have focused on sort of the bigger picture and, and some of the trends behind these realities, as well as some of the very, um, you know, high level uh, solutions. But I'd love to drill a bit into the specific innovations that uh, Second Helpings Atlanta undertook in order to deliver a solution. Because behind a, a big story of success, there are a lot of uh, individual little uh, pieces uh, to the solution. So it's one of the reasons, honestly, that it is such a pleasure to work in an innovation center is that it gives you an appreciation for the, the myriad ways that a problem can be solved by listening and convening through partnerships, fundraising, programming, education, organizing, creating organizations, legislation, technology, logistics, and so on. I'm wondering if you could then tell us a bit more about the specific innovations that Second Helpings Atlanta has uh, created in order to address uh, this need of food insecurity in, in Metro Atlanta. Maybe Deep, um, could you grab this one first? Sure. Um... You know, I think about innovation, there's lots of ways to think about it. I, I, my perspective is, you know, there is there is disruptive innovation and then there is incremental innovation. I, there are just two flavors, there's no right or wrong. Um, oftentimes in rhetoric, innovation, you, you're, you're thinking of Uber or, or, or Slack or Tesla, you know, but there's incremental innovation that, that helps achieve goals for an organization. Um, uh, as well, um, I would put ourselves in the incremental innovation bucket. What I mean by that is, um, as and when we have problems with scale or efficiency, we come together and try to solve those with the tools that we can afford and the tools um, that we can purchase. And, and and I feel the thing that we have done most innovatively is is trying to find the right combination of people, process, and tools in the most cost-effective way. Um, to get the most pounds to the to the most people we they, you know who needs them, um, you know specifically things like you know process improvements, using technology instead of uh, you know for efficiency. So you build once, use multiple times. Um, uh, using, we're starting to use uh, fleet tracking to help optimize our routes. So things like that are some of the things we've invested in in terms of uh, innovation. Last year and and going into next year, we are consciously. Um, thinking of, you know, ourselves, trying to think of ourselves as technology, non-profit, um, it's a conversation we are having internally to say, if we build technology, it'll help us do what we're doing with, with, uh, with a lot more um, efficiency. So, I mean, we can do more with less. So those are some of the aspects that, uh, that we think about. And Andre, from your perspective, what are some of these things that have been innovated along the way in order to really maximize uh, these pounds delivered and these outcomes? Yeah, I, I think for us, from my perspective, the, um, the connections that we've made um, with people have really just um, resulted in a lot of innovation for us. 
mean, Deep joined our board um, right around the time that I actually became executive director of the organization. And I think that his perspective on all of this has been super important um, in our ability to innovate and think differently um, about how we can maximize our impact and our effectiveness. I think also, you know, we were founded as a food rescue organization and really fundamentally to be taking surplus food um, and, um, and moving it to our nonprofit partners who could distribute it to their clients. But at the same time, I think part of the innovating is thinking about how do we stay in our space um, and increase the impact, but find other opportunities that are mission appropriate um, and can also really increase the impact. So a great example of that is this new relationship that we have with HelloFresh, the meal kit company. They opened up a distribution center in um, Noonan, Georgia, and reached out to us in anticipation of that, wanting us to be their food rescue partner, which we are. And they provide us with a lot of surplus food, which is incredible. When the rates of food insecurity were rising, because of the pandemic, HelloFresh said, you know, instead of just having you come and get the surplus food, why don't we create meal kits that um, are specific for you to distribute in the community? Um, you can, we'll supply all the ingredients to you. You need to assemble them. However, you got to figure out how you're going to assemble them and then you can distribute them. And so we said, okay, we're just renting some storage space um, and a little bit of refrigeration. Now maybe we can take that space and we can do the, you know, good old recruit volunteers and bring them in to assemble meal kits every single week. So we are on Wednesdays um, assembling 2,000 meal kits um, because HelloFresh has provided these ingredients to us and they're um, staple oriented, easy to use, um, and they have all of the ingredients in them. And so to me, that's just a really good example of, you know, it's not rescuing food, but it's addressing um, a food insecurity need. It's providing incredibly fresh, beautiful ingredients for people who really need it. And we were able to utilize our connections and resources to be able to put all of this together. Um, so I think that's part of it too. It's really so much of the work that we do and so much of the, you know, success, if that's how you want to think about it is about collaboration, making connections with people, utilizing the resources that are available to us and, um, and, you know, trying to increase our impact. Yeah, one thing as Andrea speaking, I, I did, I didn't, I should have mentioned is, is you know, COVID obviously has, has been in our lives for a while. So uh, one, I think one of the things that I feel was pretty innovative uh, was Andrea. Remember those conversations we had? You know, obviously volunteers uh, are a big part of what we do. About forty percent of the volume comes from volunteers rescuing uh the food right and obviously with covid that went away so you know we invested uh in infrastructure so we we went we had to pivot in some way in some form small fashion not what we do but how we do it and like we invested in uh, getting our own capacity in terms of trucks and refrigerator refrigerated capacity and leasing and having our own uh, 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 
people who can drive these uh, trucks to rescue food. So, um, so oh yeah, part and parcel of innovation is, is just to keep uh, things moving sometimes when, when things like COVID hit. So one of the things I love about that combination of answers is it highlights something I often find to be true working in an innovation center, which is that, uh, first of all, deep the fact that we tend as a cult to think of innovation as disruptive or really transformational innovation, but in truth, a lot of it is more incremental and process-oriented. It's also true that you kind of have these different buckets. Some people think of innovation as like tech and business efficiency and other under, others understand it as uh, new ways of working with people and through partnerships. And that ultimately both of these realities create the kinds of capabilities that can really move the needle. Um, and so the other thing, that's kind of one thing I've learned about innovation. And another I've learned is that the process is rarely linear, um, that it involves lots of false starts and detours and pivoting and iterating. And the same is often true with the career paths of innovators. And because the hatchery is part of Emory University and we typically have students in the audience, I wonder if you'd both be willing to reflect a bit on what you thought were your professional plans as you entered your college studies and what were some of the watershed insights, experiences that redirected uh, you towards the sorts of work that you most value doing today. And Andrea, I'd love to kick this off with you um, because of your shift from legal to nonprofit and development work. Uh, and also because there's a Wayne State University uh, story <laughs> lurking in your background. Uh, and I, my family has uh, you know, generations of ties to Wayne State as well. So go Tartars, as I still think of them. I know they're now the Warriors, but they're the Tartars to me. So maybe you could start. Um, sure. When I, um, I actually decided at a very young age that I was going to be a lawyer. Um, candidly, my parents got divorced when I was five, or they split up when I was five. And um, a few years after they split up, there was a book came out called Can You Sue Your Parents for Malpractice? And, um, and I was like, hmm, I think there's a future for me here. So law school was definitely on my path. Um, I studied, I was a political science and women's studies major in college and, um, and ultimately did go to law school um, and did graduate from Wayne State University. I, um, although I did do my first year of law school at the University of Detroit, um, I had a great experience at Wayne State. And part of that experience was um, actually working in the free legal aid clinic. And I think that um, I think that you know, sort of in my core from a very early age, um, wanting to be able to make the world a better place was within me. Um, so I abandoned, you know, my desire to sue my parents for malpractice, um, but was really interested in advocacy work for children, um, and that was very much my motivation for going to law school. Um, I ultimately took some, a good chunk of time off from my legal career. Um, my husband and I were moving and um, a couple of times and I had small children and had the privilege, quite honestly, to, um, to put a career on hold for a little while. And when um, I decided that I um, was in a position to re-enter the workforce, the nonprofit world really did call me. Um, I, again, I just, I think in my core wanting to do um, 
good work. Not that the for-profit world doesn't do that, but, um, but being able to do that was, was really important to me. And I have the ability to do it. Um, so that's a big part of it. You know, when you have, it's a privilege as far as I'm concerned um, that I get to do the work that I do. Um, and, um, and I really, you know, got my start volunteering quite honestly um, and was raising money for a school as a volunteer and ultimately thought, oh, I'll put my resume together and see if I can do this and earn a paycheck and, um, and was hired to, to um, start doing some fundraising work for another school. And ultimately um, I came to Second Helpings Atlanta, but I think that, um, you know, it's, it's really incredible when you're able to take um, a passion that you have um, and your own in, internal values and be able to find a professional opportunity that allows you to um, support all of those things um, and also earn a paycheck at the same time. So um, that was really, really my path. I'm, I'm licensed in two jurisdictions. I maintain my license in one of them, um, but I Practicing law is, is really um, in my past at this point in time. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, you know, I myself, I did a PhD and there was a running gag that we all did a, a thesis on the thing we ought to be in therapy for. Uh, and so to hear that you did a JD and it really, it started with this book, you know, can you sue your parents for malpractice? It, 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 there, there must be some truth to all this, but uh, Deep, I'm curious uh, to hear a bit about your, uh, your journey uh, from where you thought you were headed uh, to, to where you're ending up with some of the work that's most meaningful to you now. Yeah, I, I've uh, you know if, if I said I was as intentful on how I got here as Andrea is, I would be that would be very disingenuous of me. Uh, I kind of I, I I wish I was that intentful. I uh, I admire one of the things I admire about her is that um, you know I, I for me I just kind of grew into engineering. Like I came from a family of engineers, so I'm like yeah I'll go do math and engineering. Did that and came graduation, I'm like, oh, I need a job and I need to stay in the US. I'm originally from India. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna get a job. So it sounds like it was not a very big plan, but you know, I would say uh, my watershed moments really are really just quite, there's a handful of them, but you know, the things that come to mind are realizing that I enjoyed kind of, I spent a lot of time in R&D uh, and it didn't really feel like I was doing anything with the skills I had. So the, the my transition about 10 years back into building things that people touch and use, be it software or products like that, that appealed to me and that started to move me in a particular direction. And then the bigger pivot towards uh, purpose is, is really after my private equity days, when I quit, I was kind of bouncing around backpacking and I really didn't, wasn't happy, even though I was very good at what I did and I made money, uh, but it turned out, you know, I, I realized, um, the framework that that came to form for my journeys was basically expertise, um, opportunity, and purpose. As long as I tried to live kind of within the intersection of that, I found myself to be a happy human being. And what historically my career was was leading me to was do things that didn't have a lot of purpose circle in them. Um, so when I started my company, you know, we dedicate ten percent of our time and energy towards. Uh, nonprofit efforts, specifically uh, food rescue and education, 
and like that kind of completed the balance, if you may, for me. So um, I, I think kind of coming to that realization somewhat parenthetically um, uh, uh, was, was good, you know, never, uh, you know, better late than ever. Uh, but yeah, I, I think realizing, um, realizing what you're good at and, and finding that purpose early on is, is, is something people should invest their time in. interesting um this question of expertise opportunity and purpose that's a a great way of framing opportunity um i'd love to come back to that maybe at the end and i want to be mindful too of leaving time for questions from the audience so maybe from your personal stories we can dip a bit into atlanta's innovation story um and this is a city that is very unique and shapes the sorts of innovations and innovators found here, in my opinion, uh, for a variety of factors. Um, and I wonder what attributes of this city you would say have most impacted your work, uh, both as principal contributors to Second Helpings, but also as just innovative citizens of the city. Um, Andrea, could you kick us off? Sure. I think there are so many people in our city who are committed to making um, it a wonderful place to live and work and grow and be. Um, and I have had really the good fortune, mostly in the recent past, of um, connecting with people who are very much dedicated to that. Um, I think that, you know, the history of this city is complicated um, and, um, and at the same time, um, there's just so many people who are incredibly dedicated to, um, to really the community itself. Um, so, I mean, I think that for me, um, the, constant exchange of new ideas, the, you know, a, a, a podcast like this, where you're bringing people together to talk about what's happening here um, on many different levels, you know, I think is, is part of what it's all about. Um, there's an organization um, that's really, it's a nonprofit that was founded for the purpose of supporting people who, um, are committed to social enterprise called Plywood, Plywood People, you might've heard of them. Um, and um, they bring together folks like me who are running nonprofits, as well as people who are you know, in the B Corp space and, um, and just are really interested in doing the kind of work um, that is innovative and impactful and meaningful and purposeful. And, um, and I think that um, I'm super lucky to, to be here and to have this kind of an opportunity. And, um, and I hope to continue to make these kinds of connections. I think that Deep is a shining example of someone who um, has made um, a commitment to support an organization that um, is working hard every day to, to make the community better. And, um, and we need lots more people like Deep um, in our space. So, um, and I also just need to comment that 
when he said that his company is committed to dedicating 20% of their, or 10% of their time to nonprofit work, he gives way more than 10% of his time to Second Helping Atlanta. So I would just like to acknowledge that. <laughs> uh, perfect transition. Uh, so Deep, what, what would you add to that? I, um, very, very, I have a very tactical answer to that from an SHA perspective. I, you know, I was thinking about, like, I've, I've been traveling quite a bit within the U.S. So, the, you know, there is some just sheer mechanics of how Atlanta is as a, as a, as a, as a uh, area, like where there's the proximity of, of, of donors and, um, you know, and, and agencies where we take food to and the routes and, and the way the city is laid out and the drive times, they help our cause. Um, like, for example, doing this in New York would be a very different story. Um, you know, even though we complain about traffic in Atlanta, you know, we're, we're not too bad in terms of how long it takes to get from point A to point B. We're probably in the top, you know, we're like number ninth or something last I checked in terms of commute time. And, you know, a lot of Atlantans spend uh, time alone in the car. So I, I think there's there's some kind of um, underlying variables that help us be successful in Atlanta. And, and then we're just, to Andrea's point, we're just fortunate uh, that we're all here and all the right people are there and, and you know, all the, uh, the, the variables that help us kind of get to what we need to. So, yeah, I just wanted to add that. So I have one more question that uh, I would like to ask both of you before we open this up to questions from the audience. Um, and you know, one thing that has really struck me uh, as I've spoken with uh, innovators on this show, students working in the Innovation Center, is that innovators are both highly attuned to human needs and rarely satisfied with the status quo. So before we turn to the audience, I'd like to ask each of you what particular need you're seeing in Atlanta or elsewhere in the world that you still really want to address at some point in the near future and uh, to improve. Deep, would you want to take this one first? Yeah, sure. Um, I, you know, maybe, uh, Shannon, I'm going to, maybe it's my perspective because I just finished, uh, the ice pick surgeons, uh, by Sam Keen. I don't know if I'm jaded, but I feel like, I don't, I don't know if innovation and empathy always go well together. I, you know, if you look at, uh, uh, Edison and some of the great minds, they're, they're not, they're very passionate about a problem and sometimes to the detriment of the people around them. Uh, but you know, at a, at a larger point, I think you're you're right. We um, there are things that people should be aware of. I think awareness is something that I'm I'm, I'm I, I think is a problem. The fact that you know five dollars um, gets about twenty pounds of fresh food. That's that's feeding a family of four for a day. I think awareness is a big problem uh, that I think uh, needs to be solved just in our space that Andrea and I are focused on as SHA, but also in general. Uh, that's something that I think about a lot. Um, I, I think education is something that that uh, I wish I could do more more of. Um, I think that'll those are the underpinnings of a strong society. So uh, yeah, I think those are the two main problems that I kind of think about when I do think about these things. It's interesting. I think that um, I, I completely agree with, um, with Deep's perspective. You know, 
I mean, I also think about are there are there other tangible problems that I would want to focus on, or are they just much more how we all are existing in this period of time? And and I I think about just the experience that I've had in the last twenty months um, living in COVID and um, and uh, and how important connectivity has been for me um, and how um, there's been, you know, on some ways, incredible innovation um, to keep people connected, like using video platforms, um, but at, at the same time that um, it's not enough. For me, it's not enough. Um, and when I, when I look at um, the experiences that our volunteers have when they come to our warehouse to pack meal kits or when they go and do a food rescue route and they have the opportunity to have be in the same space as someone else and have that kind of connectivity. I, I, it's so incredibly meaningful. And I think that if, if we could come up with a way of um, providing that connection you know, whether it's being in someone's physical space or not, but having people be able to open up their minds to, to and their hearts to receiving that kind of experience, I think mm. that we would solve so much because I really think it's what people need now. Um, and I know that's not a, that's not a specific problem per se, um, but um, that's easily solvable. But I, for me, that, that would be super meaningful. Um, you know, it's interesting, it's maybe not a specific problem, but it is an increasingly, I think, important one, as so much of what is traditional uh, human connection is displaced by other types of digital networks or communities. And uh, I think, in many ways, the political events of the last few years and the pandemic have driven home uh, the necessity of evaluating whether there are equivalencies in these types of communities and mm -hmm. uh, the strengths of, of each and uh, to not just assume that one is a substitute for the other, um, and, you know, to really think purposefully uh, through the question of how we leverage real and how we leverage digital uh, communities. There's another question about community that is coming from the audience. Uh, first of all, they say, side note, yay for plywood people. So <laughs> shout out there for that group. Yeah. Question. Um, they say there are so many people who want to do good and actually end up causing harm because they don't listen to the communities they serve. Uh, it sounds like the two of you do a lot of listening. I'm curious, what is some of the most meaningful or most surprising feedback you've heard from the communities you serve? That's such a good question. Um, and it's interesting, we're going to embark on a, um, we, we've been given a, an opportunity to participate in some really specific coaching on listening um, through a program called Listen for Good. So um, it's really um, an intention of ours for 2022. I'm very excited about it. You know, I think that um, specific to what we do at Second Helpings Atlanta, we need to listen to what um, the people who we serve really need and can use from a food perspective. Um, you know, on some level, we rescue what we rescue and we get what we get, but um, the food isn't always useful to people. Um, you know, there are 
certain dietary restrictions or cultural norms um, that are relevant when you think about what people want to eat. Um, I think that's part of the beauty of the HelloFresh meal kits is, um, you know, they, they are actually doing a very good job of listening to the feedback that we've given them um, from the people who are receiving the food that some changes need to be made because um, the food isn't quite as accessible as it is, even though it's sitting in their kitchens. Um, so I, I, I think that, you know, listening is super important, um, but you also have to like, you got to take action when you, when you get the feedback and, and you get this information. Um, it's, it's very critical to what we do. Deep, I'm curious, uh, from your perspective, uh, in addition to wanting to, to see what your take on that would be, um, I'm really curious from your perspective, whether you conceive of listening the same way, given the role of technology uh, in your firm, uh, and that you're obviously someone who's uh, leverages technology to solve problems, if listening means the same things to you, um, or if you think about it and go about it differently. Yeah, I uh, I think Andrea said that perfectly. I, I uh, but you know I think I can't add more to it. But I'll, I'll give you my perspective of listening. I call it my the engineer in me is um, um, you know when I for, it, it takes active listening takes a lot of energy and practice at least for me right. So uh, the you know I can't help myself to solve a problem. I just how I am is probably why I'm good at what I do. But sometimes listening is just listening and not necessarily coming up with a solution. To me, the 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 training I have to give myself over time and consciously pay attention to is 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 I'm a good listener. But sometimes when I'm listening, I'm solving a problem that the other person might not need solved. Listening sometimes is just hey, this is what's going on. Just listen to what I have to say. Um, I, I think the my journey has been kind of me getting better at active listening and not necessarily solving and that, you know, people come, you can't force a solution um, based on what you think or what we think is right. And it just, it just won't work. I, I think the more often than not my experience with at least the amazing experience of working with, with, with pretty much everybody at SHA is when you are, I mean, it's a, it's a social enterprise. I, I mean that in the sense that it's people coming together to solve a problem. Inherently, there is, there is you, 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 they are built to be uh, more accepting of feedback because they inherently are coming to solve a problem together uh, out of sheer interest and, and care and empathy. So um, there is that advantage for a, for, a, for a nonprofit enterprise and a social enterprise like ours where um, we, we are always uh, open to feedback. And, and I think we do a great job accepting and reacting to it. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you both for this conversation. Uh, I, first of all, I want to thank you both for the work you're doing um, to help the community. And uh, there are so many ways that that can be done. And the problem that you've selected is so clearly a profound need. And the ways you've gone about it uh, are both people-focused and tech-focused. And I think there's a lot that all innovators can learn from listening to that combination. So thank you very much for joining us. And is there anything you'd like to sort of say by uh, to have a last word on the show 
for your fellow innovators out there in the Atlanta community who might be interested in solving a problem. Uh, any words of encouragement or uh, thoughts on, on how to get started? Um, I could take that and then Andrea, you can talk about, uh, add to it. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's I think uh, there is, Atlanta is, is, is a great place to start businesses. It's, I mean, it's a great place to be right now, um, historically speaking, and the journey Atlanta has taken as a city. Um, so if starting a company, small business support from uh, government and then uh, the access to capital resources and, you know, uh, overall, I think if, if anybody is considering starting, uh, be it a nonprofit enterprise or, or just a startup or just pursuing an idea that they've had, you know, now is, is, is a better time to do it at Atlanta. So I recommend you give it a shot. <laughs> and I'll just add that um, there are a lot of organizations, companies, people out there that are doing really great, interesting work um, here already. And, um, and I'll go back to the whole core of what we do and how we do it. And it's all about making connections. And I think that spending some time really looking at the landscape and seeing what's happening now, if your idea is in a space where there's something that's already in existence that you should connect with people um, and, you know, just reach out and talk about what you want to do that could be an improvement that can make it back new, that's different, that could raise the bar. Because uh, there's a lot of great stuff happening here. And, um, and we all could use more support, um, smart people, creative people, curious people. So that would be my recommendation. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to make this connection today and for connecting to our audience. Uh, and uh, I wish you all the best with your work at Second Helpings Atlanta and whatever else you may choose to pursue in addition to that. Please let us know if there's anything we can do to support you. And uh, it was just a pleasure speaking with you both. Thank you. Thanks so much for having Thanks, me. Thanks, Jan. Thanks for having us over. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Excellent. Thanks again. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL. To hear additional episodes, search Might Could Stories on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.